Today we're going to begin a new sermon series focused on the theme of spiritual growth. Now let me say from the outset, I'm not necessarily trying to be original. In fact, I've often said that if the job of the pastor is to pass on the faith once delivered to the saints, then originality is actually a problem. If you're trying to be original with a 2,000-year-old faith, it's probably going to land you into trouble. So I'll be drawing inspiration for this series from a number of people. John Newton, C.S. Lewis, John Stott, Sinclair Ferguson. There's a great series of evening talks that Tim Keller gave over 30 years ago. And so that has inspired this series. But let's begin by simply asking, how do we actually grow spiritually? And it's an important question. We know that if a person doesn't grow emotionally or socially or physically, they're stunted. And that's true spiritually as well. If we don't grow, we're going to be spiritually stunted because the purpose of of the Christian life is to grow up into maturity, to become the fullest version of ourselves. One of the things that my wife Ashley and I like to joke about is that our eldest child's first word was dada rather than mama. Ashley was the primary caregiver, so she spent a lot more time with Luke in those early years, but she spent all that time talking about me when I was at work. Let's make something for daddy, or is daddy home? Is, do you see him? Is, is he coming yet? And, and so his first word was dad, dad, rather than mama. But I don't think Ashley made that mistake with the younger three kids. <laughs> but when our children first began to talk, we were thrilled to death. Dad, dad, mama. They'd learn to talk. It was an important milestone. But let's imagine that 20 years later, our kids were still walking around, and all they could say was, dad, dad, mama. Well, then you would know something was wrong. And the problem is that there are many people in churches today who are still babes in Christ. They haven't grown at all. And that's why we need to engage in a series like this. What does it mean to actually grow spiritually? And here's another reason why it's an important question. I think there's an awful lot of people who simply do not know where they stand spiritually. And it's only as you begin to look at what the Bible says about spiritual growth that you realize, well, maybe I'm not a Christian at all. It's only as you look at the qualities and the characteristics that we're meant to demonstrate in our lives that we realize that we don't have them. And I think that's especially true in New York City. And this was confirmed by something I read in the opinion piece in the New York Times earlier this week. A woman asked members of her unobservant family what they'd say if a pollster asked them about their religious affiliations. She writes, none of us have set foot in a temple or a church in years. My mother and I both said we would identify as Jewish. My father, who has two Jewish parents and was bar mitzvahed, said he'd identify as nothing and instead likes to joke about erecting a statue of Athena in his yard. And my husband, who was baptized Episcopalian but didn't always go to church regularly, said he would identify as Christian. Now these responses, especially my dad's and my husband's, were surprising to me. Now I think that's uh, very true, especially in New York. There are people who would call themselves Christians, not because they believe anything in particular, but because their parents believed or because they were baptized as a child, or maybe that was just part of growing up. Or some people might call themselves Christians just by default. They would say, well, I'm not Jewish, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Hindu, so I guess I'm a Christian. 
But it's only as we start to talk about what does spiritual growth entail that we realize that we have not even taken the first step. We have not actually put our faith in Jesus. We're not vitally connected to him, and therefore the power of God is not flowing in our lives. To be a Christian means that you are personally, powerfully, permanently connected to Jesus by faith. So I'd like to begin this series by looking at a short little parable that you will only find in the Gospel of Mark. And as we turn, therefore, to Mark chapter 4, I'd like us to consider three things this morning. The stages of growth, the mystery of growth, and the power of growth. And let me also say, as a warning, that uh, I'll spend most of my time on that first point, the stages of growth. So if 20 minutes go by and we haven't gotten off point one, don't worry. I'll make up the time. It's okay. So let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 4. You'll find the passage printed in your bulletin as well as on page 839 of the Pew Bible. I'll be reading verses 26 through 29. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words will remain nothing more than letters on a page. And therefore, we pray that the same spirit that inspired these words might illuminate them so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a real encounter with Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, the first thing that you'll notice is that Jesus tells us this is a parable about the kingdom of God. Jesus went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He said that the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is here now. It is confronting us as a present reality because the reign of God is present in the person of the king, Jesus himself. So Jesus went around talking about the kingdom. But some people might think, well, talking about the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom would be a fruitless exercise. We all know talk is cheap. But Jesus proceeds to tell this parable in order to show that The proclamation of the kingdom is not a fruitless exercise, like a man scattering seed recklessly on the ground, because the metaphor is meant to show us how the reign of God grows in every human heart. Despite small beginnings, God's new life will take root and grow and eventually lead to a harvest. Now, on the one hand, we could think about the parable of the growing seed as a parable about the kingdom at a macro level, but we could also apply it in a very personal, individual sort of way at the micro level. And in that sense, the, the parable illustrates what we might call the doctrine of growth and grace. That's what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 calls it. We're called to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's precisely how John Newton used this parable. He used it to illustrate stages of growth in the individual Christian. Now, John Newton is famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace. But a lot of people have said that even if Newton never wrote a hymn or a poem, we would still know about him 
because of his letters. You see, John Newton was the consummate pastor, and people wrote him letters to ask his advice and to get his spiritual counsel, and his letters are absolute gems, so I encourage you to read them. And in one of his letters, he describes the stages of growth in the Christian life based on verse 28. He says, first there's the blade that sprouts up out of the ground, and then there is the ear, and then there's the full grain in the ear. And if you want to read this letter for yourself, you can search for grace in the blade, and you can probably find it. Now, Newton likened those three stages of growth to three images that we read in 1 John chapter 2. So there John refers to three sets of people, and he does it twice. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children. I'm writing to you, young men. I'm writing to you, fathers. And some people think that he's talking about physical ages. But almost all the commentators agree that, no, 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 he's not talking about physical ages. He's talking about spiritual stages. The children, the young men, the fathers represent stages in the Christian life. So if we put these images together, the the parable of the growing seed and then these three stages of spiritual development, then what you have is this. The stages of Christian development are the baby Christian, the adolescent Christian, and the mature Christian. So a brand new Christian is a baby. A growing Christian is an adolescent teenager. And a mature Christian is someone who has reached a, a higher state of development. But here's the thing. If you think that you are a mature Christian, you're probably not. And if you are a mature Christian, you rarely realize it. And I can also tell you that I might be a middle-aged minister with four kids, but spiritually, I am still just a teenager. (laughs) I'm just an awkward adolescent. So if you are dissatisfied with me in any way, be patient with me. I'm still growing. I'm still growing. I'm a growing boy. (laughs) So have patience. Well, If we're going to talk about these stages of growth, the first thing that we need to ask is, well, what makes you a Christian in the first place? And here's the simplest way I could think of putting it. The simplest way to put it is to say that to be a Christian means that you undergo a transfer of trust. You undergo a transfer of trust. You no longer rely on yourself, but now you rely on Jesus for your acceptability before God. So when you transfer your trust to Jesus rather than yourself, that's what it means to be united to him by faith. And you're not simply adding Jesus to the foundation of your life. To be a Christian means that you rip up the floors of your foundation. Jesus becomes the new foundation of your life. So the basis of your identity, the basis of your sense of self is no longer your accomplishments or your achievements, your strengths or your weaknesses, your successes or your failures or what people think about you. The basis of your identity is not your sex or how much money you have or how much, pun- how much power you've accrued in the world. No, Jesus forms the basis of your identity. And the decisive factor, day in, day out, the decisive factor in your daily life is not your past or your present performance. But Jesus' past and his performance. So God accepts you, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And therefore, a Christian is someone who says, I accept, I accept Jesus, what you have done for me by sheer grace, by living and dying and rising again for me. I accept what you've done as my 
standing before God. That's the basis of my acceptability before God. And because you did all of that for me, by sheer grace, I'll follow you forever. So that's what it means to be a Christian. And as I mentioned last week, that, that transfer of trust can happen quite suddenly and unexpectedly, or it could be the result of a slow, dawning realization. But either way, when you first begin to rely on Jesus rather than yourself, it's like a seed being dropped into the ground. And though you may not be able to see it immediately, the power of God has now been unleashed in your life, and you can never be the same because now you are personally, powerfully, permanently connected to Jesus. But it is true that at first you might not be able to notice a change, at least not on the surface. And that is why, take any two people. You could have a a person who's not a Christian on the one hand and one who has just become a Christian on the other. And let's say that this person who's not a Christian because of their nature, their temperament, their upbringing, because of their genes, is a far more honest, ethical, compassionate, generous, patient uh, person than the the, the person who's just become a Christian, right? Whose life might be an absolute mess because of their background or upbringing or, or genes or temperament, right? And that's what confuses people because people say, well, look, if you're not the most virtuous person in the room, don't even call yourself a Christian. Don't even bother But you see, that is a mistake. Because the essence of Christianity is not to make us nice, it's to make us new. The purpose of Christianity is not to make us nice, it's to make us new. And if we don't see that, if we don't realize that, well, then we won't evaluate other people or ourselves accurately. And if we don't see that, well, then we might just miss the gospel for ourselves altogether. So this is the way that C.S. Lewis once put it. He said, If you're a nice person, if virtue comes easily to you, beware, watch out. If you mistake for your own merits what are really God's gifts to you through nature, and if you are contented simply with being nice, you're still a rebel. And all those gifts will only make your fall more terrible, your corruption more complicated, your bad example more disastrous. But if you're a poor creature poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends. Don't despair. God knows all about it. He knows what a wretched machine you're trying to drive. Keep on. Do what you can. One day, Perhaps in another world, but perhaps far sooner than that, he will fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least yourself, for you you have learned your driving in a hard school. But then here he goes on to say the essence of Christianity. Here's the essence. God became man to turn creatures into children of God, not simply to produce better people of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of person. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences, which could never have been jumped, and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow, 
when it cannot do so. And at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one can tell by looking at them that they are going to be wings, those lumps on the shoulders may even give it an awkward appearance. So if you don't uh, understand the essence of the Christian life, you'll not understand how to evaluate yourself or others, but you might miss the whole point of the gospel. The gospel is, is not to make us, the purpose of the gospel is not to make us nice, it's to make us new. And so then let's look at these uh, stages of growth. The moment that you put your trust in Jesus, the power of God comes into your life and you start out as a new baby Christian. Now there is a big difference between the way in which our eldest child and our youngest child came into the world. If anything, we might have gone to the hospital a little earlier than we should have with our first. So Ashley spent a long time laboring at the hospital. And the nurses sort of joked with us and said, everything's fine. You never really have to worry unless the room suddenly fills with nurses and doctors. Well then, sure enough, all of a sudden, Luke's heart rate dropped and all the alarms went off and the room filled up with doctors and nurses and I started panicking. I thought to myself, oh my gosh, they're both going to die. I wasn't prepared for this. And they whisk Ashley out to the operating room and she has an emergency C-section. But everything was fine. A few complications, maybe he had to stay in the hospital a few extra days in order to gain more weight, but he was okay. But with our youngest child, perhaps we went to the hospital a little too late <laughs> rather than too early. So Ashley was laboring at home. And then when we got in the cab to go to the hospital, I think the cab driver was worried that we were about to deliver a baby in a yellow cab. And when we arrived at the hospital, there were no labor and delivery rooms. The room, the, the hospital was packed. All the nurses were talking about there must be a full moon or something. And so Charlotte was almost born in the lobby of the hospital. But you see, the way in which we come into the world physically is similar to the way in which we might be born spiritually. For some, it's a very smooth process. We're united to Jesus by faith, and it's just a smooth progression from strength to strength. But other people are born with complications. They might be riddled with fears and with doubts, with regrets about their past life or about past mistakes. And so what do you have to do in that situation? Well, you have to encourage people to take the focus off of themselves and to focus it on Jesus. Stop all the navel-gazing. Take, take the microscope off of yourself. Set your telescope on Jesus because Jesus is the one who promised that if he begins this work in us, he will see it through to completion and so that we can trust that he will move us through these stages of growth. And John Newton suggested in that letter that God is often very tender-hearted with those who are new in the faith. He says that God supplies them with cordials. Do you know what he means by cordials? I'm sure you're up on your 18th century British beverages, right? Well, cordials were not necessarily alcoholic, but they were sweet-flavored drinks that were derived from fruits or botanicals, and they were meant to revive one's spirit. And so it's a beautiful image that Newton uses here. He says that, that God often comforts new believers with cordials so that they won't be swallowed up with too much sorrow. And so he gives them experiences of his love, a sense of his presence, a, 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 
an extra dose of desire to want to pray, to want to pursue the Lord, to, to hear the scriptures, to, to read them for oneself and, and to share one's faith with others. And so Newton described the baby Christian as one whose faith is weak, but whose heart is warm. So your faith might be sort of weak. There's not a lot of knowledge there. There's not a lot of depth, but your heart is warm. And the reason why your heart is warm is because your faith at that point is often based more on feelings than it is on knowledge. The only problem is that sometimes that enthusiasm for God can tip in the direction of being a little bit overzealous, right? There's no one more zealous than the recent convert, right? We've probably experienced that. And that's why Newton says that the danger for baby Christians is that they might become censorious. Again, British language here, but to be censorious means that you're a Christian who is not yet fully aware of the weakness of your own heart or the full extent of your own imperfections, and therefore it's very easy to become critical and to start condemning other Christians for not being as passionate about the Lord or as committed to sharing one's faith with, with others. And so what do you do with the censorious Christian? Well, I would say that you just have to be patient because eventually they'll figure it out. Sometimes they have to figure it out the, the hard way. They might be a little overzealous in trying to convert all their friends, and then they realize that they've done damage to a relationship by being too forceful. And so it's through that experience that they might learn to be a little more humble, a little bit more tenderhearted, a little bit more compassionate. But the real question is, how do you know if you really are a real Christian, that, that you have been connected to Jesus, that this new life has begun, that it's emerged in you. Well, what does a baby do? A baby cries, a baby clings, and a baby crawls. See, first a baby cries. Do you realize that babies cry two to three hours a day for the first several months of their life? And why do they cry? They cry because they know that they need something. And if you are a Christian, if the power of God has come into your life, you know that you need God, and so you can't help but pray. You want to pray. It's a given. And there's an interesting place, two places actually, where the Apostle Paul talks about how when the Spirit of God comes into your life, he causes you to cry out, to cry out to God in prayer. He talks about this in Galatians 4 and in Romans 8. And it's interesting, he says, the Spirit causes us to cry out, not to some distant, impersonal creator God, but rather to call out to God as our Abba Father. And that word Abba is Aramaic. It's, it's left in the Aramaic in all of our English Bibles because you can't really translate it. What does it mean, Abba? It's like our word Papa or Dada. It was a familiar, a familiar term that, that people would use to refer to one's father. And, and that's the transformation that takes place in the life of the Christian. The Spirit gives us the desire to, to cry out to God as our Abba Father. There's intimacy there. But a baby not only cries, a baby clings. A, a, a baby wants to be held, wants to be nurtured, wants to feel the embrace, the, the love of the child's mother or father. And what's interesting about that is, you know, a moralistic or religious person might respect God as the creator. Or a moralistic or merely religious person might feel a sense of guilt before the idea of God as judge. But only a Christian can love God. Only a Christian can love God. 
And so if you're, if you're connected to Jesus by faith, there's a love there, a, a desire for God's presence, a desire for, for intimacy. You'll cling to him, you'll want to. And those experiences might ebb and flow, but when you experience it, you never want to lose it. You want that, that sense of his presence. But then finally, a baby crawls, a baby moves. You know, if you've had kids, you, you're just waiting for that day when they start crawling, when they, when they start being able to pull themselves up on a chair or a table. But then as soon as they do, you realize, oh my goodness, I've got to baby-proof my apartment. I've got to make sure that everything is raised a couple feet off the floor because they get into everything. And I've got to make sure that the window is shut and locked. But the fact that the baby is moving is a good sign because it shows that they're growing. And that's the case in the Christian life as well. A Christian is going to move. A Christian's going to change. Now, you might not notice that change day to day or week to week, but as you look back over your life, month to month, year over year, you should see a change. Are you growing in your love? Are you growing in your boldness? Are you becoming more compassionate and tenderhearted and forgiving? Are you becoming more empathetic? Are you more desirous of seeing other people come to faith? Are you more self-controlled than maybe you were in the past? So that's the first stage. And then the second is adolescence. Now, you, you can't put a number on it in terms of when you move from one stage to the next. Everybody's story is different. We can only speak in general terms. But at some point, you move out of that baby stage into adolescence. So if a, a baby Christian is that blade that's popping up, sprouting up out of the dirt, well, then the adolescent, the growing Christian, is the one where the grain is beginning to form in the ear. Now, with babies, you, you take care of babies. You carry them, you walk them around, you feed them, you change them, and when they cry, you, you, you get down on their level. You, you, you come up in front of their face and, and you ask, well, what's, what's wrong? What can I do for you? But when a teenager cries, you say, stop whining, please, please. <laughs> please stop whining, right? Because it's not appropriate for that stage of development, right? So it's, it's a new phase. So with teenagers, what are teenagers doing? They're, they're starting to spread their wings. They're, they're trying to figure out who they are. They're, they're, they're gaining independence. They're learning what it means to, to leave the nest. But that also can mean sometimes they can become a little moody or unstable or erratic. And that's true in the Christian life as well. So in this letter, Newton suggests that if a baby Christian is marked by desire, an adolescent Christian is marked by conflict, I think that's an interesting way of putting it, that the adolescent Christian is marked by conflict. Right now you really begin to, to feel the, the fight taking place within you between your old self and your new self. Because at some point, God removes those cordials, those, those comforts. And that can be a disorienting and confusing experience for some. That sense of enthusiasm might begin to wane. You might find that your desire to pray or to read the scriptures or to listen to a sermon or to share your faith with others is not quite the same as it was in the past. And you go through these dry spells and you wonder, well, what's happened? Does God not love me anymore? Have I done something wrong? Have I done something to displease him? You know, how do I get back to where I was before? And John Newton describes it like this. He says, while he, the Christian, is thus young in the knowledge of the gospel, the Lord is pleased to favor him with cordials, that he may not be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Perhaps his heart is enlarged in prayer, or some good promise is brought home to his mind and applied with power and sweetness. But before long, 
he feels a change. His comforts are withdrawn. He finds no heart to pray. Indwelling sin revives with fresh strength. And then he's at his wit's end, thinks his hopes were presumptuous and his comforts delusions. He wants to feel something that may give him a warrant to trust in the free promises of Christ. And so the question is, well, why does God allow this to happen? Why doesn't God just keep those cordials flowing? And the reason is because he is trying to teach us to rely not on our feelings, but on Jesus. You see, we, we might think that we trust Christ, but we really trust our experiences. We, we, we trust our, our experiences of his presence and his love. Or maybe we, we trust the experience of being in community with other vibrant Christians or we're encouraged by a great Bible teacher, but it's only as we go through those periods of dryness that the Lord teaches us to trust in Jesus rather than our experience or rather than our feelings. I was speaking with a woman the other day who said, you know, I used to think I was a Christian. I used to think that I was patient and that I was kind. I was even an officer in my church. But then I began to realize how self-centered I really am, how easily irritated and frustrated I can be when I adopted three kids. And that's often how it works. We have no idea how self-centered we are until we actually get really close to fellow human beings. And the point is that God does not eradicate sin from our lives. He will eradicate sin in the life to come, but not in this life. In this life, he uses the inward trials that we experience to humble us out of our pride, to see the true condition of our hearts so that he might lead us to a deeper dependence upon Jesus. Well, if that's the case, then what's the difference between the growing Christian and the mature Christian, between the grain growing and the full grain in the ear? Well, when you're a teenager, you typically overreact to situations, right? Somebody might criticize you or say something hurtful, and it devastates you. So what do you do? You lock yourself in the bathroom, refuse to show your face to the world. Or someone might look at you a little funny or say something that you don't like, and you just erupt with anger. Now, why is that? We've all been there, or at least we will be soon. Why is that? Well, it's not just because teenagers are hopped up on hormones. It's also because we don't have enough experience yet to be measured. And you see, time brings perspective and poise, and we learn to take the good with the bad, and that's true spiritually as well. So what's the difference between the adolescent Christian and the mature Christian? Well, both the adolescent Christian and the mature Christian go through periods of dryness, but the difference is that the mature Christian knows that this is only a season. It's only a season. The adolescent Christian doesn't know yet that, doesn't know that yet, right? And that's why we get angry, like, why is this happening to me? I don't like this. You know, we start kicking and screaming, but the mature Christian knows, no, this is only a season. And so the mature Christian takes it in stride. And rather than fighting against God, you know, shaking one's fist at the Lord, the mature Christian will stop and ask, okay, here's the season. Lord, what are you trying to teach me right now? What are you trying to teach me through this situation? There's something you're trying to show me. What is it? So we could think about those stages of growth as seasons of life as well. We might go through a period of winter where it doesn't seem like much is happening. Maybe that sprout is just beginning to break through the ground. And then there's seasons of spring where there's buds and blossoms. And then there's summer that's filled with fruit. 
But the mature Christian does not live in a perpetual summer. That's the thing to realize. No, the mature Christian goes through seasons. And that's why the mature Christian doesn't complain when it's snowing in January. Well, of course it's snowing in January. It's supposed to. So the mature Christian learns how to take things in stride. If you know about the seasons, then you know how to respond appropriately. Do you know that trees still grow in winter? You know, all the leaves might be gone and there's no fruit. The tree is bare and yet the tree continues to grow. It still puts on a ring in the wintertime. So it looks like the tree is getting weaker, but in fact it's getting stronger because it's putting down deeper roots. It's becoming more solid, preparing it for the next season. And that's true in the Christian life. It's actually when we feel weaker that we might be getting stronger. That's true in exercise too. A number of years ago, I went to see the doctor and per the doctor's orders, I had to go on a certain diet and then engage in a strict exercise regimen that involved not only cardio, but weightlifting. Can't you tell? (laughs) Now, the thing about weightlifting is you need to lift weights with enough weight so that after eight to 10 reps, your muscles fail. And if you, if you don't expend yourself to the point of muscle failure, you're just wasting your time. You're not going to do anything. I just saved you a lot of time now. Right? So you, you, you have to get to the point of muscle failure. And why is that? Because when your muscles fail, it means that you're actually creating micro tears in your muscles. And that's why you're sore the next day. But your body seeks to repair those tears. And that's what actually strengthens you. That's what builds your muscles. So when you feel like you're getting weaker, you're actually getting stronger. And that's true in the Christian life. God puts us through the paces. He lets us experience these inward trials and these trying outward circumstances because the only way in which our faith grows is through pressure, through resistance. That's how we learn to rely more on Jesus rather than ourselves. So those are the three stages of growth. Did you get it? Do you know where you are? How would you reflect on this personally? Well, I said that was going to take the bulk of our time, so now I'm going to hurry to the end. Don't worry. But perhaps even more important than the question of the what when it comes to spiritual growth is the how. How does this growth happen? Well, in the parable, Jesus says that the man scatters the seed and and the seed sprouts and grows spontaneously out of the earth. The man has no idea how. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it works. You scatter seed, and if it falls into the soil and the conditions are just right, if it has enough warmth and access to oxygen and, and uh, enough nutrients in, in, the, in the ground, enough moisture, well, then the seed will break and the plant will grow. I don't know how it works. I haven't been able to keep a plant alive for longer than two weeks. I could kill a cactus. It's a mystery. But I know this much, that the kind of growth that Jesus is talking about is organic growth, not mechanical growth. And you see, it's very easy to mistake activity or busyness for growth. For example, let's say I wanted to build a rock pile. You know, I could pile 10 rocks up there, and if I wanted to to grow the rock pile, I could add 10 more stones. But that's not organic growth, because organic growth happens from the inside out. If those rocks grew in size or took on a different shape or developed an elaborate new design, well, then that would be something. But rocks don't do that. 
And so in a similar way, it's easy to mistake the activity of, you know, piling rocks on top of one another, easy to mistake the activity or busyness of, of church for growth. And I can speak very personally about this. I mean, look at me. I'm, I'm a minister. I'm a professional Christian. How do I spend my time? During the week, I, I'm reading the scriptures. I, I'm reading commentaries. I'm reading up on theology. I'm speaking to people all the time about God and about Jesus. I'm teaching, preaching sermons. And wouldn't it be so easy if I just looked out and I thought to myself, well, if the, if the church is growing, if there's more people coming, more people involved in community groups, more people participating in our mission of the city, if people pat me on the, on the back because they are enjoying my sermons, I could say, I'm growing. But that doesn't mean a thing. I have to stop and I have to ask myself, well, am I rooted in Jesus? Am I growing in my love of God? Am I growing in my love of other people? Am I more forgiving, more patient, more understanding than I was a month ago, a year ago? If I neglect prayer, if I neglect seeking God's presence, if I neglect the growth in grace, the ministry might be growing, but I might be dying, I might be shrinking inside. And that's true of all of us. So we can't mistake mechanical growth for the real thing. But then finally, where do we find the power to grow? I want to close with this brief word of encouragement. The, re- the, re- the reason why Jesus tells this parable, you have to understand, is to emphasize the power of the seed. That's what this is about. He's emphasizing the enduring power of the seed. Though we might go through these various stages of development, the point is that the seed is guaranteed to grow. It might seem like proclaiming the gospel, preaching a sermon is a fruitless activity, like a man scattering seed recklessly on the ground. But if that seed is planted, it will grow. And yes, of course, we need to receive it for ourselves. We need to respond to that message of Jesus. But if we do, we will grow. Because the power to grow does not lie in the soil. The power to grow lies in the seed. There's a curious place in John chapter 12 where two of Jesus' disciples come up to him and say, there are some Greeks here who want to see you. They're not from around here. They, they want to meet you. They want to get up close and personal. They want to see the real Jesus. Will you meet with them? And Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't answer their question. Instead, he starts talking about seeds. It's very odd. All of a sudden, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And what Jesus is suggesting here is that the seed is not ultimately a what, it's a who. The seed that we receive, it's not an idea, it's not a worldview, it's not an experience, it's not a doctrine, it's a person. In the parable that Jesus tells, he talks about how the man scatters the seed and then he sleeps and rises. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed does the same thing. The seed sleeps and rises, sleeps and rises night and day and then it sprouts and grows and he doesn't know how. And interestingly, the word that Jesus uses for rises is the same word that he uses for resurrection. You see, Jesus is the seed who falls into the earth and dies on the cross in order to bear much fruit. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? So that we might be able to cry out, Abba, Father. He dies so that we might live. He is the one who is buried in the earth but then rises again on the third day. And you see, if you receive that seed, well, then it is guaranteed to grow. Because the power doesn't lie in the soil, it lies in the seed. So take that person, Jesus, deep into your heart and into your life. If you are personally, powerfully, permanently connected to him, then nothing will stop that new life from growing in you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that when you instituted the Lord's Supper, you said that you are the vine and we are merely the branches. And apart from you, we can do nothing. But if we remain in you, if we abide in you, if we stay put in you, we will bear much fruit. It's guaranteed. It's inevitable. And so, Father, we pray that as we come to this table this morning, that we might abide in you. Help us to recommit ourselves to you, to take the truth of who you are and what you've done for us through your life and your death and resurrection deep into our hearts and to our lives so that we might forever be changed by the power of new life coursing through us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.